0: The Living God is a God of Life. From the first chapter of the Bible, where God speaks creation into existence, to the last chapter of the Bible, where we see a vision of the new creation, Yahweh is the life-giving God. He's creative and merciful, gracious and just. The God revealed to us in Scripture and in the person of Jesus is long-suffering. He loves us so deeply that he remains faithful even when we do not. He knows that we are so far fallen and twisted that we cannot get ourselves, let alone our species, on the right track. And so this God, this God of life, he enters into our situation and does what we cannot do. He becomes a human to fulfill that which we are called to be, the image bearers of God. Jesus dies in our place, and Jesus offers us forgiveness and new life. That sounds like a fantastic deal. The God who gives life and redeems us and offers us new life. So then, why isn't life easier? Why isn't it easier for people who put their trust into Jesus? Well, Have you heard the story about the time I got shot in the head? When I was a kid, maybe 13 or 14, my friend Josh and I would explore the woods behind our houses. A forestry company owned 1,200 acres of second and third growth forest behind a bunch of suburban neighborhoods where where we lived. And I could get to Josh's house through a series of old logging roads and together we would ride motorbikes and build forts and shoot our BB guns all relatively free of any kind of supervision. For whatever reason, call it juvenile male brain, we thought it would be a fun game to wear thick clothes and motorcycle helmets and goggles, and then to shoot each other with BB guns. Think like high-stakes paintball. Anyway, one day we're playing this stupid game of shooting each other while running through the woods, pretending we were in the movie Red Dawn. Any 80s kids out there know what I'm talking about. Um... and I was out of BBs, and so I signal for a timeout, I take my helmet off, and I start walking away from Josh to go to my stash of BB's. I simultaneously heard a whizzing sound and felt a thud in the back of my skull. Now Josh ran to me, mortified, as I was doubled over in pain. But after a few minutes, we were both most terrified of what our parents might say if they found out. We got the bleeding to stop, and while there was some good swelling around the the wound, it seemed like the BB probably just bounced off my head and I had a good goose egg. We were so very wrong. As the days went by, my head was tender, but I was able to kind of keep it to myself. Nobody knew that I had this wound on my head. In fact, the swelling was going down. But as the swelling went down, it became more and more obvious that the BB was still stuck between my skull and my scalp. In a few weeks, it had developed this hard sort of scar tissue around the BB. My body had encapsulated this foreign object in a sort of cocoon of scar tissue. Now kids and curious people out there, you can ask me how I got the BB out uh, out of my head some other time. But I'm sort of at the point of my illustration. You see, a few years back, I was working with a counselor, and we were exploring some of my many issues, and we, we found our way into talking about some deep emotional wounds from my past, stuff that had happened when I was a kid, stuff I had long forgotten and thought that I had resolved. But th- this counselor helped me to see that just as my head had encapsulated my BB gun wound, so our emotional wounds have a way of remaining inside of us. Wounds and grief and sin and shame, they're, they're like poison to us. And if we don't deal with them in constructive ways, if we, if we don't get help and get things out in the light, our, our bodies, our souls have a way of encapsulating them in an attempt to keep us from the poison of these wounds. The average human being begins to pick up these wounds at a very young age. We're born into a world that is good but tainted by sin. We're born into families that may intend the best for us, but even the best families will wound each other over the years. And that doesn't even address those who have, are exposed to straight-up evil or grief or loss or abuse. Now, humans are incredibly resilient. You are incredibly resilient. And you and me and everyone we meet, we are walking wounded. Jesus offers us life and calls us to follow, but we are so used to our wounds. We don't even notice the limp of our insecurities or or the way that our past griefs suck the hope and the joy out of life. We don't notice how our emotional calluses protect us from the poison of trauma, and how those things hold us back from experiencing a full range of emotions or the ability to fully trust another person, let alone Jesus. In the Lazarus story, we see a man who has died, and his body is encapsulated in an earthen tomb sealed with a stone. And in that tomb lie not only his body, but also the griefs and fears, the anger and disillusionment of his sisters and his community. In many ways, it was safer to just live in the grief and the anger rather than tamper with the tomb. Tamper with the tomb or mess with the encapsulated grief and pain, and you don't know what might happen. It's definitely going to stink when we walk into the light of life. It's going to be complicated. But there is freedom. Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, the one who speaks life into existence in Genesis 1, and the one who prepares new life for us as described in Revelation 21, that same Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He calls forth life to a dead man, and he calls forth healing to the two sisters who had died to part of their faith and to part of their trust in Jesus. What a glorious and terrifying moment. It's no wonder that most of us stay in the comfort of our tombs and our wounds for so long. It is a risky business to step out into the unknown of healing in Christ. As a church full of wounded people on a path toward healing, it's absolutely vital that we strive to be a community that expects the messiness of the healing process. And last week, we talked about being the kind of community that is used to receiving stinky people. If we're going to get real and to be open with our own healing process, we have to have a place, a community that feels safe let's face it, if we were to wait for the church, any church, to be the perfect environment, we would never start on the journey. After all, the church is made up of wounded people all on different stages of their own journey. So what I want to focus on today is what it might take for us as individuals to respond to the call of Jesus to follow, to come out of the tomb, to step toward life. I think the first step is to To identify the goal. Like, what are we actually aiming at? What are we talking about here when it's coming uh, out of the tomb or stepping toward life? Well, one way to think of it is in terms of hiking. So let's say that you're hiking up one of the many glorious ascents in the area in which we live, like Winchester Peak or Skyline Divide or Fragrance Lake, whatever. You have the picture in mind of what the destination is like. And for some of these local hikes, you can even see the top from uh, the starting point. But you get a few miles in and it begins to get hard to see. Vision is cut off by towering trees or by traversing barren rocky switchbacks. Your breathing gets more labored, your heart beats faster, and you get focused on where each foot is falling and what's up just ahead. You kind of lose sight of the end goal. But every once in a while, it's helpful to just pause and to catch a glimpse of where you're going and and where you've come from. And we, we need to evaluate and to get perspective. Most of us get in ruts or kind of train tracks in life. Our brains do this because it's efficient. So like if you commute to work, you probably don't even think about it after it becomes a habit. Right, our brains are sort of like freeing up RAM uh, to to other tasks that are that are more complicated. So, like for me, some of my deepest reflections came during the commute from Regent to home. So I I go up to Regent and have these mind blowing classes, and then on that commute home, I would I would be processing all of the things I was learning and feeling. And there were days. Uh, that, that I would be so deep in thought that from about the Massy Tunnel to the border, um, I could hardly tell you how I got there. I, I was just completely in autopilot thinking about other things, and, and that can be extremely helpful. But sometimes we need to reassess where we're going and how we got there. Are our habits helping or hindering us toward the goal? Am I in concert with the Holy Spirit, or am I dragging my feet? So in the the world of spiritual transformation, Jesus is the goal. Knowing him, trusting him, growing in character so that we more and more reflect his character back into the world. And so it seems to me then that what we're aiming at is both to know Jesus more deeply, that we might be more deeply formed in his image. How do we do that? How do we keep our eyes on him? How do we heed his invitation to step out of the tomb and toward life? I think the first thing is to have the right mindset. We live in a culture that loves success stories. Social media offers us a platform where we can control our public image. No one has to see the monotony of our daily lives. No one has to know that we're depressed or alone or insecure. We can... Always post our vacation photos and that one-in-a-hundred shot of where everyone in the family is smiling. And what happens is that we see these images of success and we think that people are just living from one glamour shot to another, from one highlight reel to the next, and that maybe we're all alone in our struggle. Maybe we're just not as good at life as other people seem to be. And even in the American church culture, we love testimonies. And the kind of testimonies we tend to like, or the books that get written, um, are the stories of people who overcome great odds or experience some major transformation. Drug-addicted, heavy metal rockers come to Jesus and have their lives transformed. Missionaries who, against all odds, see revival and miracles— These kinds of stories are totally encouraging, and they usually include several accounts of difficulties and failures, but there's almost always a happy, spectacular ending. It's like we're only okay talking about the hard stuff if it's the backstory to a success story. And the average follower of Jesus, you know, we can become, we can believe in the lie that other people, they just all must have a more dynamic relationship with Jesus than I do. That somehow we must not be very good at all the spiritual transformation stuff. And that can be totally discouraging. So we need the right mindset. And here it is. Nobody's good at it. Nobody is great at following Jesus all the time. Everybody is struggling. In the Bible and throughout Christian tradition, following God is often described as a journey or a pilgrimage. Abraham and his family were perpetual nomads on a journey. Ab- Moses and the people of the Exodus were on a journey. Most of David's life was spent on pilgrimage where he, from where he started as a shepherd boy to where God was taking him. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus portrayed with his disciples as people on a journey to declare the kingdom of God. So, in fact, before the followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were known simply as the Way. Their very name connotes the idea of journey. This is the Way. Mark's Gospel picks up more than any other Gospels on the theme of the journey or the way or the road. And when Jesus encountered people, he invited them to follow him on the way. Think about it. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, invites people to join him on the way, on the road, on the journey. And what kinds of people did Jesus invite? Perfect people? Of course not, because there were none. And there are none. He called quick-tempered fishermen and tax collectors and greedy Judas and jaded Nathaniel. And Jesus says, follow me. The cost of discipleship is portrayed as both a call and a journey. Come and see. Come and follow me. Come forth from the tomb of death. People who were healed were called into new life, out of tombs or demonic possession or out of self-condemnation. So how do we do this? Once we've accepted the mindset that everybody struggles, once we've accepted the reality that following Jesus is a lifelong journey, not a pleasure cruise or an instant destination, how do we follow the way? Well, I want to suggest five ways to help you on the way of stepping toward life. Here's the first, and this might sound so obvious, but if following Jesus is about Jesus, then we need regular exposure to Jesus. I I know it's so complicated, right? No, it's simple. There there are lots of ways to be exposed to Jesus. We can appreciate his creativity and the beauty and complexity of creation. We can marvel at the expanse of of his vision and power as we consider the mysteries of the universe or the endless depths of love and friendship. But if we want to know his character, and if we want to know his demeanor and his call upon our lives— then the scriptures are the place to start. In the gospels, we come to know the teachings of Jesus. We witness his character in action through the stories of his compassion and his truth-telling, his healings, and his sacrificial love. There are lots of ways that Jesus makes himself known, but the most reliable source he's given us is the Bible. During the season of Lent, consider that question we talked about earlier, What am I aiming at? What am I aiming for here in this walk of discipleship? Where am I going on the way with Jesus? Is your life leading toward the character qualities we hear Jesus speak about in the Sermon on the Mount? Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan? And if not, what is standing in our way? So the Scripture is the place to start. But there's more. Any pilgrim on a journey will tell you that it is important to have trusted traveling companions along the way. Following Jesus out of the tomb and into life takes a community, which leads me to the second way uh, that Jesus that we can follow Jesus on the way. And that is to find people who are moving in the same direction. Find people who are moving in the same direction. See, churches, in theory, are made up of people who are somewhere on the road following Jesus, right? Uh, Some have just started. Some have traveled for a while but have gotten sidetracked. Some are in a place of life that requires um, a season of brokenness or or attention to physical or relational healing. And if you're sensing the invitation to a season of growth, you want to find someone or a group of people who are also in that season, Maybe it's a Bible study or a discipleship triad or a close spiritual friend that you can can trust to process the journey with. But everyone needs traveling companions and preferably people that are moving in the same direction so you can encourage each other. Third, it's also helpful to have regular contact with someone who's been down the road that you're attempting to travel. So maybe you're sensing an an invitation to grow with Jesus in a season of singleness. Uh, Do you know any faithful followers of Jesus who have traveled that road longer than you? Or, Or maybe you want to grow with Jesus in your parenting or how you live out your faith in business. Who can you ask to encourage you and to mentor you in that process? And I just want to say also, don't discount Dead people. <laughs> there are fantastic books, like one of the uh, great sources for mentors or models, I should say, would be those saints who have gone before us. Read some spiritual classics in the area that you're trying to grow in, and I think you could find some great uh, encouragement and ideas. Fourth, you're most likely going to need to find someone with special skills. Special skills that, that you may not possess. Um, And you're going to need that if you are coming out of a tomb, if you're in a healing process. See, Jesus heals in all sorts of ways. And just as you might seek a physician if you had a broken leg or you needed surgery, so it would probably help um, to talk with a counselor or a pastor or a therapist or all three if you are dealing with emotional wounds or spiritual wounds. We need to get past our rugged American individualism and the stigma that surrounds mental health in our culture. We need all the help we can get, and so seeking a traveling companion with some special skill set to help us address these uh, inner wounds is vital. And fifth, if we want to grow in following Jesus on the way, we need to try stuff, like before we feel the feelings, before we experience the voice of Jesus, if we ever experience the voice of Jesus, we can still grow in being faithful, in obedience. Through each micro-decision, we can choose faithfulness to Jesus over selfishness and over our own fear. So what would it look like for you to stretch yourself a little bit? Are there ways that you could consider serving others that intimidate you a little bit? Are you using your gifts in the community of the church? or Is there something holding you back, some sort of fear or insecurity? I want to close this sermon with good news. Yes, the journey from tomb to light, from death to life, it's a hard journey. And it's long. And it often feels like a hike of false peaks and discouraging valleys. But the fact that it's hard doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong and it doesn't mean that you're cut off from God. Our scripture reading from earlier today was from Romans 7:14 through 8:4. And in that passage, the great apostle Paul writes of his own internal battle. Listen to some of the excerpts from this passage. For what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear that again. I want you who only feel like you have a shred of faith in Jesus, hear it again. You who feel like you're at the end of your rope and can barely cling to the hem of Jesus' robe. You who are in Christ because you have nowhere else to turn and you're not even sure if you have any faith left. Hear these words. Therefore, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law Of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus invites us out of the tombs of our death not as a requirement for his grace, but as an invitation to live in his grace. Have courage.